ask that you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 to 15, having finished up uh, the majority of what we know as the Lord's Prayer last week and landing on this uh, element of forgiving others, we continue that thought and we'll pick up in verse 11 and read through to verse 15. Matthew 6, 11 to 15. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, it is truly such a joy to be among God's people this morning. I'm convinced that there is no other gathering that can compare to the gathering of saints in the worship of our God. No organization, no packed clubs or sports arenas can compete with the wonder of gathering with fellow believers in Christ to magnify the name of our Lord. Beloved, we are united not just by some common interest or passion, but by the coming of the kingdom of heaven to this earth, by the reigning of her king in glory. We are united to one another in Christ. We gather as citizens of his kingdom, ambassadors of the eternal realm, to worship he from whom are all things, and to whom are all things. And now as I take on this great privilege and responsibility of proclaiming God's word, I ask you to join me in prayer. Father, we do desire to give you all the glory. We desire that our worship would be pure, that we would worship in spirit and truth. We desire to see your spirit active, moving mightily among us and in this community. And for all that, Father, we need you. We need your grace. We need you to move. Father, I ask that you would speak through me, not my words or my message, but what comes from your word. Pray that what I speak and teach and preach would be in accordance with your word, that it would give the sense of your word, helping us to understand and to put some of the pieces together in the broader picture. Father, take away anything of me or anything that's of of wrong motive or anything that doesn't point people to Christ. Magnify your son, Father. Move in power. Change us. We believe that you can and we ask you to do it. Pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, following the model prayer that Brother Clay expounded for us last week, to further explain what he meant by the request that God would forgive us as we forgive those who were in debt to us, Jesus added these two phrases. He said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, right off the bat, I have to ask, do we see anything difficult in this passage? Jesus just told his disciples that their forgiveness from God depended on whether or not they forgave other people when they were sinned against. Well, that kind of appears to make our forgiveness, our salvation, dependent on our actions, does it not? 
Because if we are not forgiven for even the smallest of our sins, then surely we will face the wrath of God for eternity. But wait a minute. In a group like this, I expect your natural impulse to have a reaction to that kind of statement. I expect you to cry out, but what about what Paul said? Right? We're good Bible students here. What about what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not of a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we have to ask, is Jesus' message in Matthew 6, 14, and 15 at odds with the message of Paul? Of course, there are some people that will take a stand and say, yep, they're, they're at odds and we're going to follow Jesus. Others will say they're at odds and we're going to follow Paul. So did Jesus, like is sometimes supposed of his brother James, preach a gospel of works? And then Paul, a gospel of grace. I believe the answer is simply no. For sure, No. Their messages are not at odds with each other. If we see them at as odds, it's because we are at odds with Scripture. Rather, they serve to indicate a consistent teaching within Scripture. Because we cannot separate the work of God in salvation with the outcome of that work. And the outcome of God's work of salvation is the fruit that will be displayed in the life of the believer, in the life of the one who has been redeemed. So where does this all begin? Does it begin with me or does it begin with God? Well, it might seem as we read this passage and some others we'll look at in a little bit, that we've got a bit of a chicken and an egg scenario. But Scripture, I trust, will give us an answer that we seek. And beloved, even if we are quite certain we know that answer and we are confident within ourselves what comes first, we cannot, we must not ignore the warnings of Christ here. Whatever else you know about Scripture, when our Lord or one of His apostles gives us a warning We ought to take that seriously. We cannot ignore it. Jesus is very explicit here. If we do not forgive others, our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. Of course, if you are familiar with the whole flow of the Sermon on the Mount, this should come as no surprise to you. Just think of how the Sermon on the Mount ends. If you don't remember, then this will serve as a bit of a a taste, a, a foreshadowing of what's going to be coming in the weeks and months to come. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount began with Jesus laying out a new and radical ethic or a radical call to obedience for anybody that would follow him that would coincide with the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount ends with Jesus giving a warning that there will be many professing believers who will be rejected and cast away on the day of judgment. Some of whom will be able to point to some pretty impressive spiritual-looking things on their resume. No, we cannot afford, we must not remove the teeth from the warnings in Scripture. We must not close our eyes and our ears and chant over and over that no, I will not listen because I am saved by grace. Beloved, we must come to terms with the reality that the Bible, the word of God breathed out by eternal God has no problem warning people People who believe that they are saved by grace, warning them that if they don't have good fruits or good works, that they will be finally and eternally lost. And while this might seem harsh or drastic, this is in truth a kindness. This is a mercy from our Lord. 
even if it makes us uncomfortable as we search our hearts and minds. Beloved, there is a category of people who believe that they are Christian and yet will suffer under the wrath of God for eternity. Notice I said there's a category of people who believe they are Christian, not people who are actually Christian. There are people who are simply deceived, that, that believe, they think that they are at peace with God. If you were to ask them about the relationship with God, they would say they are at peace. They might even say that because of Christ they are at peace, and yet they remain his enemies. To not warn the people in this category that they are on the path to destruction is the grossest kind of cruelty and callousness. In his kindness, God gives us very practical ways of knowing whether or not our faith is genuine. He doesn't leave us helpless. He doesn't leave us just to wander aimlessly to, to know, am I one of the deceived or am I a faithful servant of Christ? And our text this morning is one of those tests, one of those passages that can say very clearly, are you someone who is actually in Christ or are you someone who is simply pretending? The same Lord that said that everybody who believes in him will have eternal life here said that if you do not forgive others, you will not be forgiven. There is something about being able to forgive others, something about having a forgiving spirit that ought to give us and is able to give us confidence that we are in Christ. There is something fundamental to the Christian life about having a forgiving nature. So fundamental that if it is absent from us, if we cannot forgive, if we time after time hold on when we have been wronged and let it fester and live within us, if that is true of us, then alarm bells should be going off. And Scripture is warning us here. The kindness of God is warning us here. Beloved, Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Just as we read each week when we take the Lord's Supper. If the forgiveness of sins was so central to the mission of our King, then being forgiving ourselves towards other cannot be foreign to citizens of his kingdom. Of course, if we are going to have a discussion about forgiveness, we have to have some kind of understanding of what it means. In its most basic sense, forgiveness means to pardon any wrong that has been done. It carries the expectation that any debt that has been accrued has been cleared. Any offense that has been caused has been repaid. That restitution has been made. That any barrier that existed in, to the relationship has been removed. Well, in our relation to God, forgiveness means that our sins have been paid for. That there is nothing left upon which the wrath of God could rest on us. It is to stand guiltless before the Creator. It means that that severed and broken relationship has been repaired. Well, in relation to others, it is much the same. To forgive, some, to forgive someone when they have sinned against you is to let go of any consideration of their guilt before you. To let go of any consideration of their need to continue to pay down the debts or their need to further assuage your anger or your frustration. It is to remove the barrier that exists betwixt you and they on account of the wrong that was done. 
is to lower your defenses. These defenses that we raise to protect ourselves when we've been hurt, to lower them a little bit and allow ourselves to be vulnerable to hurt again. To vulnerable, at least to some degree. And surely there is wisdom that must be sought out in many cases. So if we know what forgiveness is, then we must ask, why are we supposed to forgive? Why is forgiveness such a critical issue for the believer that Jesus will tell us if we do not forgive others, then our Father in heaven will not forgive us? Well, beyond that threat, which is a real threat, why could Christ be so confident that his disciples would be a forgiving people? Let's look at a couple passages this morning. Turn with me to Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Matthew 21, 31, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And if your Bible says seven times 70 times, we'll discuss that in just a moment. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who has wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. When time came, the same servant went out. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him up to the jailer until he could pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, this passage gives us not only a good answer to the why, but it gives us an answer onto the how often, how many times must I forgive? Whereas the second question, while very hard to live out, is a very simple answer. We are to forgive as often as we are sinned against. At least, we are to forgive as often as we are asked for forgiveness. And likewise, we are to let go of all bitterness and all desire for vengeance, even when we are not asked for forgiveness. 77 times, or other translations might have it, 70 times seven times. And all the difference between there is whether or not they believe that Jesus was quoting from the actual Hebrew from Genesis 12.4, or 4.12, no, 2.24. I'm wrong both times. Whether Jesus was quoting from the Hebrew in Genesis 2.24, or was he quoting from the Greek Septuagint? So there's a little bit of, of a scholarly debate about which one is more realistically which one he was saying. But ultimately, the exact number there isn't important. I don't think Jesus was giving any indication there that we ought to have a, a sheet with us that we mark down every time somebody sins against us and we forgive them. And then when we get to that magic number, we get to say, no more. You're done. I'm done with you. 
That's clearly not what Jesus is teaching here. The point is that we should be a forgiving people. It must mark us. We should be known as a forgiving people. Why? Because we have been forgiven far, for far greater things than anybody could possibly sin against us. Beloved, there is nothing that somebody could do to us that could compare with our infinite offense against our holy God. There's nothing that could be done to us that could compare to our offense against God. As in the parable that Jesus gave that we just read, we owed an astronomical debt Something beyond imagination. Something that only eternity under the fullness of the wrath of God could even approach paying back. That it will never be able to pay back. It will last forever. That is the size of the debt that we owe to our Father in heaven. For us to refuse forgiveness to those who seek it, or for us to hold on to bitterness and anger towards those that don't, is to play the role of the ungrateful servant in the parable. In that parable, the warning of Jesus from our passage this morning is played out beautifully. If after receiving forgiveness for our greater debts, we refuse to forgive others their much smaller debt in comparison, we will be held responsible for every last penny we owe. Let's look at one more passage to drive home this point. Turn with me to Luke, 30, sorry, Luke 7, 36 through 50. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she leaned, learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who it was, this sort of woman who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owned 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose who he had canceled the larger debt. Said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointments. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Of course, we see a similar theme playing out here. Whereas before, the one who had been forgiven much ought to have been ready, quick, anxious even to forgive others. Here we see that the one who has been forgiven more ought to be more loving. Think of what Jesus said to this woman, this known sinner, this pariah of society that this Pharisee was embarrassed when he was in his home. He told her that her sins, which were many, were forgiven because she had loved much. 
Just as the Pharisee answered, the one who was forgiven more, loved more. Even if that makes us uncomfortable, Jesus had no problem speaking to her as her, that her love was the reason for her forgiveness. Even as we see this principle that her greater love would flow forth from her greater forgiveness. Okay, well, whom must we forgive? Probably the next logical place to go. But that question's a little bit harder now, isn't it? There is a debate about whether or not we are to forgive everybody when they have wronged us, or if it's only possible to forgive somebody when they have repented for the wrong they committed against us when they ask us for forgiveness. There are arguments on either side of this conversation. You'll find people that may have a convincing way of a line of reasoning. Much of it will come down to semantics, to come down to what we mean by the words that we use. I believe in any case, we will be forced, if we are going to be faithful and consistent with Scripture, to extend ourselves into areas that make us uncomfortable. Well, for one thing, we ought to be able to distinguish from letting go of our demand for retribution, letting go of our demand for satisfaction, letting go that we be recognized for the victim that we have been, for how we have been wronged. We need to be able to distinguish between letting go of those things and from true and full forgiveness. Because the one speaks simply to the condition of our hearts. The one is dependent on nobody else to let go of those things and not harbor them, not hold on to them as a long lost and hated yet loved friend. It takes nothing but our change of our hearts. The other speaks to the restoring of a relationship that may only be possible when two people are both or two parties are both acting towards restoration. So in one sense... I think we can say it's only possible to really forgive somebody who has asked for your forgiveness. After all, it's not really possible to have a restored relationship with someone who is not desiring that restoration. Somebody who is not ready to admit the damage that they have caused us or are causing us. We can't forgive somebody in the sense of making ourselves vulnerable to them again if they do not understand and repent of the ways that they harm us, the danger that they pose to us, if they're given a chance. There's no wisdom in that. Whereas after all, doesn't the Bible teach that God's forgiveness of our sins follows after our turning to Him in faith and repentance? However, Even if that case is solid and there are cases where we do not have to forgive because of that inability for the restoration of relationship, that really doesn't let us off the hook at all on our end. Even if it might help us to respond in wisdom to those who remain our enemies. And make no mistake about it, there is a category of people who are and will be your enemy. People with whom we don't have a restored relationship with. People with whom we ought not make ourselves vulnerable to. So what about our enemies? Jesus has talked about our enemies already in the Sermon on the Mount. Do we get to stay angry with them? Do we get to forever hold their faults against them? Do we get to have that relationship at least with our enemies? Well, if you've been paying attention to the Sermon on the Mount, I think you know the answer to that. We are commanded to love our enemies. We are commanded to do good to those who persecute us. We are commanded to bless those who curse us. Even as our Savior while he was being tortured and murdered, prayed that his Father in heaven would forgive his murderers their sins because they didn't really know what they were doing. The same example that Stephen, one of the first deacons, followed. 
And the same example that James, the brother of Jesus and the author of the epistle, which we're studying in our small group, that same James, if we can believe church history records, followed that example. While being murdered, these men prayed that God would forgive their murderers. Of course, that doesn't mean that people will stop being our enemies simply because we let go of all the animosity, all the bitterness that we hold against them. But it does mean is that we can determine and we ought to determine in our hearts not to let their offenses against us allow us to treat them in kind or allow us to remain in sin by harboring anger and bitterness. Even with our enemies, we must let go of our vengeance and seek to do them good. Well, let's look at this from another angle. I want to read two different lists of characteristics. And I want you to be able to think as I read, in which list does being forgiving belong? And in which list does holding on to past wrongs and bitterness belong? Turn with me to Galatians 5, 19 through 24. First and second, Corinthians and then Galatians. Verses 19 through 24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, beloved, in, in which list does holding on to other people's failures and the bitterness, which is its natural child, which list does that belong in? I think it's clear. Bitterness and strife are not fruit of the Spirit. Yet they are quite natural and at home among the works of the flesh. Beloved, there may be and there will be times when we must hold some people at a distance and don't allow them opportunity to hurt us anymore. Especially when those people refuse to acknowledge their sins, to repent, to turn away from them, to ask for forgiveness. Yet, we cannot be people who allow the sins of others to turn us into angry, cold, and bitter people. That is not of Christ. That is of the flesh. We all know people whose lives are dominated by bitterness and anger towards other people whom they feel have wronged them. Sometimes anger and bitterness toward God. Some of us have probably had seasons in our lives where we had just a tremendous amount of this building up within us. Some of us may be struggling with this now. In our current culture, when we look around us, this is big business. It is big money to stir up a sense of injustice, to get people stirred up about their guilt or somebody else's guilt. 
We can see what this kind of thing, what holding on to the sense of injustice, holding on to the sense that somebody has wronged me and I deserve to be recognized and I deserve to have this taken care of in the way that I want it taken care of. We understand what that kind of attitude does to people. We've seen it. It consumes them. It destroys them. Beloved, do not let yourself be controlled by this. If we allow past hurts, real hurts, real sins and trespasses that other people have done to us, if we allow that to drive us to perpetual bitterness and anger, we are in the same camp as these people that Jesus warned who refused to forgive. We cannot afford to ignore the warning of our Lord. If we do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will our Father in heaven forgive ours. Well, lest we think this is too isolated of a kind of, of a thought pattern, that this God responding to our actions is, is, is too unique, it's too out there, we must, we must be understanding something wrong. Our passage this morning is not the only place where we see this kind of response from God in a way that clearly has something to do with our salvation. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus warned the disciples that were listening about the danger of denying him before men. He said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Of course, Paul, we want to think that we're pitting Jesus against Paul. Paul, writing it to Timothy, said much the same thing in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus told the disciples in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And just a few verses later, he said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. There are more. We could go on. But I think we can clearly see that Jesus and his apostles did not have any problem with language that placed God's response to man as dependent on his actions. Be that our loving God, be that our confessing him before men, be that whether or not we obey him, or be that our judging and forgiving of others. Of course, this fits nicely within the pattern that we see within the Old Testament. We read in Joshua 24, 19 and 20. And Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn against you and do harm and consume you after having done you good. Jeremiah 36, God warned the people of the judgment that was coming because of their sin. He, warned, he told Jeremiah why he was giving the warning, so that everyone may turn away from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and sin. He warned them because they needed to turn away from their sin if he was going to forgive the same prophet through whom God delivered that message, Jeremiah, lamented after the fall of Jerusalem. He lamented saying, we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. We read a similar lamentation in Daniel 9, 8 through 14. I ask you to turn there with me. Daniel 9, 8 through 14. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And Daniel. Chapter 9, 
chapter 9, 8 through 14. Definitely not chapter 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke out against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing us to great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice." Well, truth is, we really don't hear much about forgiveness apart from repentance, apart from the response and actions of men, until we hear about it in the New Covenant, in Jeremiah 31, 33, 34. And even then, in the New Covenant, the understanding, the, the assumption under the New Covenant is that God would indwell His people such that they would have a new heart, that they would have a new nature, that they would respond to Him in faith and repentance because of the miraculous work that God had done within them. This is why that is a better covenant. We started this whole discussion by looking at the warning that Jesus gave in the model prayer. And so far, rather than explaining away the seriousness of the warning that Jesus gave, we've only added to it. By realizing this isn't the only time in Scripture that God's response of mercy and forgiveness is tied to our actions. John 15.5 tells us something that will be very important to us if we are to understand and survive this message and this warning. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Of course, therein is the answer. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, we cannot work these good works that were prepared beforehand, beforehand for us. Without Jesus, we can't do these things that are impossible for the flesh. Yes, we must have good works. And Scripture does not shy away from speaking about how God responds to our actions. Yet the truth remains that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Salvation is of the work of God. The work of God is evident in the works of the one who is saved. Without works, no man will be saved. The order of those statements is important. Yet all of those statements are true. Unless we are willing to pit Scripture against itself, and throw out whatever passages make us a little bit uncomfortable and don't seem to fit within the mold that we want them to fit, we are left with these two truths standing together. We are saved by the grace of God, yet we will not be saved without good works. 
Scripture clearly presents our salvation in such a way that it is dependent on the work of God. I don't think anybody in here would deny that or challenge that. Yet it also teaches that God will respond to our good works or to our lack of good works. We cannot separate the one from the other. What we'll see when we devote ourselves to the whole counsel of the word of God is that ultimately everything, both God's work and our work, is of the grace of God. Everything that we do, everything that is necessary for our salvation is done in the strength, ability, and under the motivation that God's Spirit puts within us. Jesus said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John tells us the reason of that love is because he first loved us. Because God first loved us, even while we were yet sinners, we obey his commandments. Because God has caused us to be born again and made us a new creation in Christ, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We have faith as a gift of God according to his grace, and we have as a result of that faith the salvation of our souls. These things are so intertwined, we cannot separate them one from the other. Everything that Christ has told us we must do, we do because God has done for what God has done for us, because of the power of his spirit within us, which we were given in our adoption as sons. We cannot separate God's work in salvation from the evidence of that work, our fruit. Salvation is the work of God. The work of God is evident in the works of the one who is saved. Without works, no man will be saved. We forgive because we have been forgiven. If we forgive, we will be forgiven. If we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. Beloved, it has always been this way with God's people. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. Yet James tells us that Abraham was justified because of the evidence of that faith, his righteous works. As a nation, Israel was redeemed out of bondage and slavery by the grace of God. They were commanded to be obedient to the Lord their God, and they were promised destruction if they weren't. And even though God had chosen that nation out of all the nations of the earth, it was only the remnant who believed that remained faithful to him. It was only that remnant who were saved. We cannot separate God's work and salvation from the necessary evidence of that work. The evidence of that salvation, then as it is now, as it will be, is a love for God, is a love for the people of God, a love for the law of God, a love for mercy and grace, a desire for forgiveness, a desire to be forgiving. When Jeremiah spoke of the new covenant that God would make with his people, he wrote that God would put his law within them, that he would write it on their heart, that he would be their God and they would be his people. Ezekiel, speaking of the same same covenant, wrote that God would take out their heart of stone and give within them a heart of flesh that they might walk in his statutes and his commandments. Well, this new covenant of God, this better covenant, according to the author of Hebrews, is built upon the work that God accomplishes in his people that enables them to be able to know God and to walk in the ways of God. The gospel, which is the power of our salvation, is the good news that everything has been done that is needed to make us right with God 
and that God will do everything within us, through us, that is needed to keep us right with God. We cannot separate the aspects of salvation that we have been saved in the past, we are being saved in the present, and we will be saved in the future. We were saved when God gave us faith and we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We put our faith in him and repented from our sins. We were saved. We are being saved as that work has been made manifest in our lives and as we, we step out and perform these good works that God has prepared for us as we are made more like Christ. And we one day will be saved one day we will actually have the promised salvation that we long for, that we look for, that this body of death wars against us so that we doubt it and we fear. One day we will be completely saved when we are freed from this body of death and are made perfect in Christ. All of this, all of this is necessary and important. And it is according to the grace and the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. The work of God is evident in the work of the one who is saved. Without works, no man will be saved. Beloved, God does not save anybody in the past whom he will not sanctify in the presence and glorify in the future. Well, a common question arises in conversations like this. How can I know that I'm actually saved? Beloved, we have not been left in the dark to try and figure out, are we actually really in Christ? Scripture does warn us, yes. Scripture does warn us about those who are false believers, Yet it gives us a number of tests, very practical ways that we can see and work out if it is evident in our lives that we in fact have been saved from our sins. Turn with me to 1 John 2, 3 through 6. James, 1 and 2 Peter, and then 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Tell you a far better place to turn if you are doubting your faith, if you are doubting your place in Christ. A far better place to look is, is to the epistles of John. It's a far better place to look than to the front flap of your Bible where you signed it the day that you said a prayer. It's a far safer place to look to see the test that Christ gives through the apostle John to know, are we a Christian? Are we saved? It's a far better place. Jesus and his apostles could speak of the work that we must do to be saved because they knew that God had promised that all these works would be evident in the lives of the believer. They believed that God, in fact, does make his work plain and evident. No, this is not created salvation based on our works or our righteousness. It is of the grace of God. If you hear this message and you continually just say, I reject what you're telling me because I'm saved by grace, then you are not listening to the word of God. We are saved by grace, all of it. Yet this does not prevent us from preventing, this does not allow us to present a salvation that carries no power, that carries no fruit, and no works. We categorically deny a gospel that has no power. 
I categorically reject any gospel that does not have the power to change the one who is saved. If the gospel has the power to take a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, it has the power to change us. It has the power to actually bring about what scripture promises will be true of the believer. When it comes to the chicken and the egg, or rather our forgiving and our being forgiven, the question of what comes first The answer is that God's work comes first and that God's work comes second. It's all God's work. Salvation is of the work of God. The work of God is evident in the works of the one who is saved. Without works, no man will be saved. Well, quickly, as we draw to a close, what do we do with this? Beloved, there will be passages in Scripture that make us uncomfortable. We need to become comfortable with that fact. We need to not run from that reality. It does us no good to neuter everything that is designed to penetrate our defenses and to wound our apathy. As a a minister of the gospel of Christ, I cannot pull any punch that my Savior has thrown. Scripture is clear that there are things that will be evident in our lives if we are going to be saved. Too often we spend all of our time and energy defending our right and our ability to sin without losing our salvation. We hold on to our sin as though it is our lifeboat. Beloved, why are we more concerned with our ability to remain in sin than we are with our need to be freed from it? Why do we spend more energy justifying our long-held anger, our bitterness in its natural child? Why do we spend more time justifying that than asking God to take this burden from us and to let us rest in his goodness and sovereignty? Why do we desire more to impress upon the grace of God to forgive our continual sin than we desire to impress upon the grace of God to free us from our sin? God saved us while we were yet sinners, not so that we could remain as we were, but so that we might be made like Christ. We spend far too much time and effort defending our lack of growth, defending our lack of evidential works. We ought to spend that time and energy being and doing what God has called us to do and be. I heard a very powerful quote recently in an old sermon from Albert Martin. I don't believe it was original to him. So this, the statement that nobody is perfect is the hypocrite's couch and the believer's bed of thorns. I'm going to say that one more time. The statement nobody is perfect is the hypocrite's couch and the believer's bed of thorns. Think of that the next time you're tempted to palliate or to minimalize or trivialize or belittle your sins. Only the hypocrite uses the weakness of their flesh as a a comfort, as an excuse to sin. Disciples of Jesus hate the weakness of their flesh. They understand it. They hate it. They weep over it. It torments them. The lover of sin looks for ways to be comfortable in mediocrity. The one who loves God looks for ways to kill sin and pursue holiness. Beloved, we are called to perfection, not to complacency. The Christian life pictured in Scripture is not pictured as something that just happens to us once and leaves us as we are. So we can just sit back and wait for all these things to unfold and we can go to eternity. 
Scripture tells us our Christian life is like a race that we run, that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and that we must test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We're not told these things in order that we doubt. Don't let yourself hear that, hear these things that that we must show things that God is doing in us. Don't hear that as, I must try harder, or I must do this, or I must do that, or I must doubt. Hear this as the promise of what God will do through his children, what he will do in his children. And pray back that promise to God that he will conform you to Christ, that he will make you more. We ought not be so easily content with a life in Christ that has no real life or real power. There is no salvation in a powerless gospel. God has promised to do great things for us and in us and through us. Perhaps we should trust His Word and believe and live like that is true. Beloved, think more upon how we have been forgiven than in how we have been wronged. Take on the mission of our King. Take on the attitude of our King. Trust in His goodness, in His justice, in His righteousness, in His sovereign plan, which includes each and every single way that we have been wronged or will be wronged. Trust in His sovereign plan. Let go of all the wounds that you hold so close to and forgive. Let go. As you have been forgiven, forgive. As you forgive, you will be forgiven. To God be all honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. As we approach the Lord's table again this week, I'm so very thankful that our worthiness to stand here, our worthiness to partake of this reminder of the sacrifice of Christ is not our perfection. Our worthiness is because we are trusting in Christ, because We are clinging to what Christ has done, clinging to his sacrifice, clinging to his righteousness. We are devoting ourselves to follow him in that radical call, not perfectly, but faithfully. So if that is where you find yourself this morning, that you are trusting in Christ, that you see this as a, a common grace, a gift of our God to have a tangible reminder of what he has done for us, that we, as we take the elements, we are holding ourselves. We are holding on to the sacrifice of Christ, claiming it as our own, his righteousness as our own. If that is true of you, and your conscience does not for some reason forbid you from coming, then I ask that you would come and grab and take up the elements and then we will partake together in just a moment. Father, we approach you only because of your Son. The terror of you apart from what your Son has done for us would be so great that we could not approach you. Even now, we approach you trembling and in awe and fear of who you are in worship and adoration. Father, I pray that as we take these elements, allow this not to become some common thing. We do this every week not because We think we earn something by it, but because we need constant reminders that it is by the sacrifice of Christ, His righteousness, that we stand confidently before our God, that we boldly approach the throne. 
Father, help us to see that more clearly, to trust in Him more fully, to love Him more perfectly, to obey Him more completely. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And to that we say, come Lord Jesus, come. Come.